Good morning, everybody. Hey, in just a few moments, you're going to have an opportunity to give your tithes and offerings if you brought those with you. Uh, in preparation for that, I just want to take a, a couple moments um, just to talk about something. Obviously, we if you were at the Compass Gatherings a couple weeks ago, um, we talked about just the, the shift that God is orchestrating in our church, the direction, the Compass direction that He's giving us. And, and what you, you've just seen on the screen, probably you've heard uh, in various formats about the shift that we're allowing to happen this Halloween. I know historically our church has had a harvest party or festival here on the church campus. But when we start to understand that when we draw ourselves to a building location on a night when our culture already has a rhythm that it lives in, that you and I sometimes think that that everything in the world is evil, therefore the only answer to that is to extract ourselves and create an alternative. But what God is in the process of doing in our lives and in the city that we live in, He's in the process of redemption. And redemption is different than isolation. Redemption is different than demolition. And what we have a tendency to do in our lives when when we face something that we think is bad or evil or no good is that we throw the baby out with the bathwater. God never does that throughout history. If you notice that, you know, back in Genesis 6 when He could have wiped out everything... He still left Noah's family because he wanted to redeem humanity. And every moment that you see the way God works, God didn't throw out Moses when he killed an Egyptian. It took him 40 years to finally redeem him. See, God takes what's broken or against him or what's perceived as evil and it can be redeemed. Halloween can be redeemed. And it's not because you and I create an alternative to get away from it. But we look within it and we see that God is actually creating an opportunity for us. God says to us, through Jesus, to love your neighbor as yourself. Halloween is when your neighbors come to your door, whether you want them to or not. So we've shifted, and we've moved the harvest party from being here to in your garage. There's a little orange flyer in your bulletin that you're going to see the next few weeks. It's just some things that you can do to create an environment of hospitality so when people come to your door or come to your garage that you have an opportunity to engage more than just throwing candy at their kids. You might find out there's people living three doors down for you that you never knew, but now you've discovered who they are. And that's the opportunity that God has. If you have a house that no trick-or-treaters come to, then find somebody in the church you're friends with who does and go hang out with them in their garage so that we can embrace the opportunity that God is giving us. And I know, scary people might come to your door. Scary people come to your door every day who don't have masks on. All of us are scary, but that's part of even for our own kids, helping them to understand that we don't run from what's perceived to be evil, but we ask God to redeem what's evil and redeem what's broken in our own lives and in the lives of other people. So we're shifting. It's a shift, and the understanding is to be more about out there and more about what Jesus is doing and less about what we want. It's changing the question that we always have about church. And that question usually is, what's in it for me? How do I do things that are beneficial for me? But you and I are shifting that question to realize that the reason we exist is to glorify God. So the question's different. What's in it for God? What's in it for Him? How do I bring glory to Him? When we walk into this building on a Sunday morning, what is in it for Him? Not what's in it for me, because that's a consumeristic question. How do you feed me and make meet my needs? What if we focused on God and the world and let God take care of all the things that we think are the most important? I guarantee if we do that, God will transform our world through us. And I'm excited to be a part of the journey. So as we walk through this, asking the question, when we give, same kind of thing. A lot of times you'll have somebody stand up here and tell you five reasons or three reasons why you need to give and how it's a benefit to you. What if we just ask this question? When I give, what's the benefit to God's kingdom? What's the benefit to God? What's the benefit to the church and our city when I give? It's huge. It's more than just keeping the lights on and paying the staff. It's the ability to be on mission, to invest in what God's doing in Simi Valley and around the world through the resource that God's already given to us. So when we give, it's really not about us. We want to make it about us, but it's about Him. Worship is about Him. It's about glorifying Him. So as we prepare to give this morning, would you have that mindset? Ask God, what is in in this for you? What should it be in for you? Not, Not what I want, but ultimately what you want. It's kind of what Jesus said in a much more profound way in the Garden of Gethsemane when He said to the Father, not my will be done, but yours be done. Let's pray. Lord, as we prepare to give, we thank you for the shift that you're stirring in our hearts. Lord, that you're pushing us outside our comfort zone, outside the four walls, outside even familiar routines for us, Lord. And we're not changing just to change. We're responding to what you're doing in us. And I pray, Lord, that even as we give, that we would see 
maybe we've given for years, we've tithed and we give to right size and other opportunities, but, but we've never really thought through, Lord, how much this blesses you or how much this allows you to resource your kingdom through our church and in the world. So, Lord, change our perspective, shift our understanding so that ultimately our eyes are focused on you and our hearts are poised to embrace the world, Lord, around us. We thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in us. In Jesus' name, amen. So go ahead, if you're on the center aisle there, you can grab the basket uh, and pass that to the sides, and the ushers will go ahead and collect those. You can as well drop in your Connect cards if you filled those out as well. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them and open to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at one verse in Matthew chapter 5 as we're continuing through our series, at the con- understanding the concept of discipleship and learning to live this life God's called us to. If you've been here the last few weeks, if we started in the first part of Matthew, and we're walking through what, what we've identified we call the Beatitudes, is really the groundwork, it is the, the foundation, it is the gateway or the door that Jesus shows you and I that this is how you and I enter into a relationship with Him. And so over the last few weeks, we've talked about really important things, about how we don't come to Him with anything, we don't earn anything, but when we surrender Him, we get everything. And we talked about the reality of being a sinner, that none of us are perfect. And we have to come to that reality before we can experience the comfort that God brings through forgiveness. And then we've talked about what it means to be meek, which really has to do with not about our strength and our ability, but what God wants to do through us. And so now this week, of course, as the way that Jesus works, it never gets easier, but it gets more profound in the way he says things and what we understand. So this morning we're going to talk about the concept of discovering the blessing of hunger of hungering and thirsting after something that is beyond us. And what Jesus defines for us that hunger and thirst should be directed for is let me just read the one verse we're going to focus on and then we'll expand from there. Where he says in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So when you and I read that verse, if you were to be honest with yourself, when you and I think about things that we hunger and thirst for in our life, righteousness is usually not the top of the list. It's other things. We have passion and desire and hunger and thirst for other things in life, but usually righteousness comes in lower on the list for most of us because there's other things that we would honestly, if we're going to be honest about our lives, we would put far above that. But to understand what Jesus is saying, before we get into some of the the details, I want to just, again, break down like we've last last couple weeks, the verse we're looking at. So Jesus says, blessed. That means that you're happy. That means he's saying congratulations. That means that he's saying you're fortunate, you're approved, you've gotten it when... You hunger and thirst for righteousness. He's saying, good job when you get to that point, that blessing. So when he says, when you hunger and thirst, that is important for you and I to embrace this reality of hunger and thirst because those are the very things that we don't want to live with. We want to we be satisfied. We want our thirst quenched. We don't want to have any lack in our life. So when Jesus says, you're blessed when you hunger and thirst, again, this is the opposite of what we would think. He said, that's a good place to be. Because ultimately, he will bring fulfillment. But when he says this, understand what he's describing in that hunger and thirst. Is he saying that there's a deep and profound desire in each one of us. That there are things that if we were to be honest with ourselves, we would say to ourselves, I can't live without that. That's a true hunger and thirst. That's a deep passion that drives us. That, that it, it may be different things for different people, but there's ultimately, we think if that was not present in my life or I couldn't seek after that, then I would somehow cease to be who I am or I would really be dying to have that. That's that deep drive. It is on the physical sense. It's like when you haven't eaten for a long time and you're really hungry or you haven't drank anything for a long time and you're really thirsty. It's that, that just that desire that almost drives you, almost takes control of you in a sense. When I was younger, I went through some experimental um, allergy tests that didn't really work. It was this treatment that was kind of strange. But one of the, the things that I had to do, every Wednesday, I'd go to the doctor and get this treatment after school. But from the moment that I got up in the morning, I couldn't drink anything. I could eat, but I couldn't drink. So I would get up, and I wouldn't drink anything. I'd get to school, and my normal daily schedule would be the same. I would go to school, I'd go to my class and go to recess, and then I'd go to lunch. And I'd get lunch, and I wouldn't drink anything. I'd still play and you know, get sweaty and, and do everything, you know, elementary school kids do. And then I remember at the end of like recess and you're going back in to your class and everybody would line up at the drinking fountain right next to the door. And I would just stand there and I would watch my friends one by one, you know, just drink to their heart's content. I'm, yeah, I'm really wanting just, just a drop of water. And I can't because I know if I do that, then I can't go in for treatment that day and the whole process starts all over again. 
But I remember just being so thirsty. If I could just have that, I know I would be satisfied. That's the kind of thing on a much more profound level as in our spiritual realm that God says this hunger and thirst should be something that we so desire. But then when he gets specific and he says hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now when it comes to righteousness, we usually fall into one of two camps. We fall on the one side, which is we understand that righteousness comes because Jesus' death on the cross, he takes our sin, and then in exchange, he gives us his righteousness. And so it's this gift of grace and mercy that even though we don't deserve it, we get the righteousness of Christ. So that when God looks at us, Jesus' blood covers us, our sin is covered, and what God sees is the righteousness of Christ. It's beautiful. That's a gift that God gives. Or we go to the other side and we think of righteousness in terms of the checklist of morality. Of all the things that we're supposed to do, the rights and the wrongs, and making sure that we're, we live a good life. And because of that, we can feel a sense of almost self-righteousness because we've done a good job. We're a good moral person. So when it comes to righteousness, those are the two definitions that we kind of go between. But see, if you and I understand what Jesus is talking about in righteousness, if it's the righteousness that he gives to us as a gift, how do you hunger and thirst for something that's already given to you? Not because you deserve it, but because God chose to. And then the other side, how do you hunger and thirst for what really is the law? Hunger and thirsting for being a better person, doing it better the next time, working harder, being more righteous on your own. That's the law. So when you take those two, in a sense, extremes, that can't necessarily be what Jesus is describing. But when you understand that the definition of righteousness for you and I is not the law, it's not the do's and the don'ts. The definition of righteousness is a person, and his name is Jesus. He is the definition of righteousness. So when Jesus says hunger and thirst for righteousness, the way that you and I do that is not through good behavior, not through accepting, obviously, the gift of righteousness he gives us, but it's actually hungering and thirsting for Jesus himself. Because if we get Jesus, we get his righteousness. But he's, that's what he's describing because he says, if you hunger and thirst for me, you will be satisfied. You will be filled. You will experience what your ultimate desire is. But it has to be focused on the righteousness that comes through understanding, knowing, seeking after, hungering and thirsting for Jesus in our life. Allowing him to take over. Allowing him to be the Lord and the leader of our life. That is what he's talking about for you and I. And it's only in that context that we experience what all of us desire. Fulfillment. Satisfaction. The hunger being satisfied. The thirst being quenched. All the things that you and I would desire. He allows that to happen in our lives. But before we can get to that point. I want to just spend a few moments talking about where you and I have a tendency to get off track when we want hunger and thirst for God. We want Jesus to be the focus of our life. What happens is that you and I have hunger and thirst, but instead of focusing that hunger and thirst on Jesus, we find our way into places where we think that we, we can't live without these things, and these things become substitutes to the true thing of who Jesus is in our life. And we run after substitutes all the time in our lives. And when we do that, we never find ourselves experiencing what Jesus said we can experience. That we will be filled. We'll be satisfied. Because substitutes never deliver on what they promise. There's three main categories I just want to touch on that have to do with, I think, the, the driving force of things in our life that you and I think that we can't live without. That we're dying for in our lives. That we really want because we think if we have those, then we will experience being filled. The first one is comfort. That is a driving force in our life because comfort to you and I is the absence of pain, suffering, or lack. And, don't, doesn't, and all of us want that kind of existence. We don't want to be in pain. We don't want to experience suffering. We don't want to lack for anything. We want to have everything. And so because of that, we drive ourselves towards this ultimate goal of comfort, thinking if I reach a place of comfort where I feel no pain, no suffering, and I don't lack anything, then suddenly I'll be happy, content, fulfilled, and satisfied. But you and I know when we follow that road, it doesn't end where we want it to. Because all the things that you and I try to bring into our life to help us to somehow not experience pain or suffering or loss or, or lack things that are things that just can't deliver. And even on the bigger side of things, you and I have to understand that when we experience suffering and pain and lack, it's not something that you and I turn around and rebuke and say, oh, that's the devil. The devil can work through those things. 
But I'll tell you, more times than it's the enemy, it's actually God using those circumstances to try to teach us something. To try to help us to understand something that apart from pain, suffering, or lack, we will never learn because we're too comfortable. We're too insulated. You and I know, I had people, a couple of people come to me in between services about the, the reality of pain and suffering in their life. And even though they're in the midst of suffering, they are so grateful because they realize the profound things that God has done in their life that apart from that suffering, they would have never experienced. Because you and I have to understand when we go after comfort, then we won't get Jesus. Because Jesus will use the discomfort and the suffering and the pain in our lives to get our attention so that we do have a hunger and thirst for Him. See, pain is an indicator that there's something that needs to change in our lives. It has to. You and I have to sometimes experience pain in order for there to be true change in our lives that God gets us back on track with what He's doing in our life. I have a good friend. His name's Tyler. He is the head of the physical therapy department at George Fox University in Newburgh, Oregon. He's a great guy, a great athlete, but uh, very gifted. Um, worked for Nike for years, but... So we, over, over our time in Oregon, anytime any of me or some other friends of ours, we, we would be running or whatever, we never went to doctors or physical therapists. We went to Tyler, I mean, because he was a physical therapist for years, and he's the head of this department. He knows what he's doing. And Tyler always told me this. He said, if you ever go to a physical therapist, you'll know if they're good or not. I said, well, how do you know if they're good or not? He said, you'll know if they're good if they cause you pain. He said, if you go to a physical therapist and you don't experience any pain, you're not making any progress. And so because of that, I never wanted to go to a physical therapist that was good. But I would go to Tyler. And so actually one time, one of my friends, Dan, who's a runner, we were at a meeting at our house. And, and so after the meeting kind of uh, dismissed, Dan and I were talking. And so we pulled Tyler over and Dan said, hey, I've got, I've got an issue in my knee. And, and, I, and I run about this distance and this happens. He goes, I, I start feeling something. And he's kind of pointing where it's at. And he said, okay. So he has Dan sit down. And he says to Dan, he says, listen. He said, I'm going to do some things to your knee. And he goes, I want you to know. When it hurts, I want you to tell me it hurts. He said, because when I finally find the pain, I'm going to find the source of what's going on and we can deal with it. So Dan's like, okay. So Dan sits down, he's dangling his leg and Tyler starts manipulating and I'm looking at Tyler's hand at Dan's knee and thinking, that doesn't look very comfortable. And Dan's like, no, that doesn't really hurt. That doesn't really hurt. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, Dan is about 38 years old. He sounded like a 10-year-old girl screaming at the top of her lungs in pain. And then finally, Tyler pulled his hand back. He said, okay, I found it. I remember Dan's face. I mean, he's like sweating and he's feeling, he's like, oh, I'm glad you found it because I was about to die. But Tyler said, okay. And then he explained to him, this is what's going on. He explained exactly what's going on with his knee because he could feel where the pain was coming from. He said, if you can do this, this. And, and I was amazed. But apart from pain, Dan would have never known what was wrong with his knee. And I think sometimes you and I put such premium on comfort that we ignore the reality of that. That if you, you read through the scriptures... You don't have to come to grips with pain's a part of humanity. Pain's a part of following Jesus. The church grows more rapidly when there's persecution, not when it's comfortable. See, we, we would love for the church to go rapidly in a comfortable environment. Wouldn't it be great? No pain, no suffering, no persecution, nothing bad ever happens. Everybody in, the, in our culture loves the church, thinks it's great, and the church just grows. It doesn't work that way. Read the book of Acts. The most accelerated moments of growth in the church happened with pain, suffering, and persecution. There's a reason for that, because you have to make a decision. Am I going to follow and focus on Jesus, or am I going to be about my comfort and the substitute of what I think it's going to bring me? And it never, ever delivers. So the first thing that we die for is comfort, and that's the substitute that takes us away from the hunger and thirst for Jesus. Second thing is that we hunger and thirst, instead of for Jesus, we hunger and thirst for pleasure. We're dying to experience, to feel, and ultimately to escape the pain or the routine or the mundane life that we live. So we find avenues to go after to somehow get us to a place where we're experiencing and feeling things that at least for a moment in time allow us to disengage from reality. And we make that the premium of life. We make that what we hunger and thirst for. So we, 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 we seek after those high moments and those things that we know that help us to escape the pain of our life or, or the insignificance of our life. And so that in those moments we feel alive. But if you, if you experience like all of us do, if you've walked through that where you've made pleasure your God and that's what you focused on, what happens is the first time's really good. The second time's not so bad. The third time's average. 
The fourth time's not that good at all. And by the fifth time, you're struggling to go back and capture the first moment of what you experienced when you had pleasure in that moment first off. And the cycle continues until the very thing that you thought would bring you satisfaction and would fill you and would bring you pleasure is the one thing that now owns you and actually destroys you. It's the process of addiction. And you don't have to be an alcoholic or addicted to drugs to experience it. It's part of the human condition. And it makes pleasure the premium. That's what I'm going after. That's what I have to have. And when that becomes the focus, then you and I have no hunger for Jesus. We have only hunger for something that we think will satisfy us. And we define what that looks like. And I think for most of our culture, it's the way to escape reality. The sad thing about when you and I escape reality is we always have to re-enter it. You always have to come back and your problems didn't go away. They're still there and they're actually worse. But we love to disengage. See, we have all kinds of addictions in our culture. And I could give you the regular ones. But we have all kinds of crazy addictions that we have that we think if I have this, I'll be happy. That's why people wait outside an Apple store overnight to get an iPhone. That's why people, and I would say young people, but I know it's usually adults now. That's what's driving the video game industry right now. Grand Theft Theft Auto 5 came out two weeks ago. In 24 hours, Grand Theft Auto 5 made $800 million in 24 hours. In three days, it made a billion dollars. A video game. Some of you are going, I know, I got it. It's really cool. (laughs) And I just extracted myself from this morning to come to church for an hour and a half. Why do video games so draw us? Because in a video game, you can be anything you want to be. Now, I'm not, I know some of you are walking away, and you know, okay, Pastor John doesn't like Jack in the Box, he doesn't like Facebook, and now he doesn't like Grand Theft Auto. No, that's not true. I actually like video games. I think they're fun. But when they're used to escape reality, then they become an addiction. And our focus has become pleasure. And we're not hungering and thirsting for God anymore. We're hungering and thirsting for our own pleasure that's never satisfied in something that's simply a substitute. It cannot deliver on what it promises. So we have this driving force of comfort. We have this driving uh, force of pleasure. And then the third thing, and just so you know, this is the one for me. I'm just going to tell you, this is my big one here. Number three is significance. I've been trying as I go through my message and prepare. I'm letting my message read me and say, okay, where are you in this? And I know what I was praying through this a couple days ago and I was looking at this and I thought, God, that is exactly where I'm at. Sometimes I'm dying for significance. That that is the driving force in my life. See, for you and I, if we're honest with ourselves, the greatest fear that we have is that we will be insignificant. That we won't be impactful with our lives. That we won't, our life won't make any difference in anybody else's life. That somehow we'll be irrelevant. Somehow we won't be at the center and we won't be significant. And people won't pat us on the back and people won't like us. And they won't remember us when we die. That's like one of the greatest human fears. That we'll be insignificant. And see, you and I have to come to grips with that that becomes what we hunger and thirst for. Then that drives us to be significant. To be something And when that drives us, then it's no longer about Jesus. It's about us. It's about our own legacy. It's about our own resume. It's about our own tombstones. What we want our lives to be. What's our life going to amount to? And we have these epic dreams of what our life's supposed to be about. That's called a Disney movie. It is. Watch most of Disney movies follow the same narrative. And it's because it's... It taps into part of who we are as human beings. Disney, as an organization is brilliant because they understand the human condition. And most Disney movies, especially kids' movies, they all follow a similar pattern. It's the underdog. It's the outcast. It's the one that nobody expects anything from that somehow does something extraordinary in their lives and they go from being nobody to being somebody and then the end of the movie, the last five minutes, is everybody applauding them. That's Disney movies. And we love them. Because we see ourselves in that person. We want our lives to be epic, which was just a movie that was released not too long ago. Isn't it funny that all those movies are animated? For a reason. They're not real. It's not reality. But it seems great to us. That's why we like that good feeling. But when that becomes the driving force in our life, we want our lives to to read the same way, to be the same narrative, that somehow the insignificant, no-talent, left-behind person does something extraordinary, and everybody likes them, and they go down in history as this great person. 
If that's what you and I seek after, that's the very thing you won't have. Because even in being trying to be significant, we can never be good enough. We can never do something extraordinary enough. And again, we don't have room for God when it's all about us. If it's not about God's glory and lifting him up. One of the things, honestly, when I was praying this week that God challenged me. This is what he said to me when I was praying. He said, would you be willing to live and die in obscurity if it meant that it would bring glory to me? That's not what you want to hear God say to you. But I thought about that thought. If it meant that God would be glorified and he would be lifted up, would I be willing to live and die in obscurity? No one would ever remember my name. No one would ever know who I am. But they certainly would know who God is. That's hard. Nobody would know John Amstutz, but everybody would know Jesus. That's a pretty good thing, but that's hard. Because we want it to be about us. So those are the substitutes that we allow to take the place of the hunger and thirst for God or for Jesus. And when we do that, we miss out on true satisfaction. So now shifting gears, how do you and I move to a place where we can develop a hunger and thirst for Jesus? That that can be the focus of our lives. It'll be up on the screens, but I want to jump to Philippians chapter 3 because Paul shares with you and I his own journey and his own understanding of how his life went from all the substitutes and all the things that were supposed to deliver to focusing himself squarely on Jesus and experiencing the fulfillment that only Jesus brings. So let me read Philippians, starting with Philippians 3, verse 7 through 11. So Paul says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death, so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I want us to see that because that's the shift that God wants to bring for all of us. Is that Paul ultimately, at the start, was about himself. He was about trying to fulfill himself. He was about living out his own legacy. And then on this road to Damascus, Jesus gets a hold of him and everything changes for Paul. His hunger and thirst for his own righteousness, for his place of prominence, for being a Jew among Jews, goes away. And now his focus is, I hunger and thirst for Jesus. For his kingdom, for his righteousness, for his purpose in my life. That became Paul's focus. So how do you and I become like Paul? How do you and I change so that we can develop a hunger and a thirst for Jesus? It really has a lot to do with emptying, not adding. And that's what all these, when you walk through the Beatitudes, a lot of it has to do with what we are willing to give up and surrender as opposed to what we're trying to add and fill in our lives. The first thing, which goes back to what we just re- we talked about, is that you and I have to be willing to empty ourselves of substitutes. We are addicted to substitutes. And we, in a sense, have to detox ourselves. So we have to take a step back and we have to realize substitutes cannot deliver what Jesus can. And we have to be willing to step away from that. In John chapter 4, Jesus had an encounter with a woman who had lived a life of substitute. She's a woman that had used men and sex to somehow try to fulfill herself. Didn't work. She's an outcast in her own society. And Jesus, you know her, he encounters her at a well. She's drawing water. He has this amazing conversation with her. And he says something so profound to her because he's talking about the difference between a hunger and thirst for a substitute and a hunger and a thirst for Jesus. And the different roads that they lead down. This is what he said to her in in verse 13 and 14. Using the analogy of water. He says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Whoever has a substitute will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What was he saying to her? You can keep drinking the same old substitute over and over and over again. But you're going to come back thirsty again. Or you can move from the substitute to the real thing. And you can drink now and be forever fulfilled. That's a huge promise that Jesus is giving to you and I. Will we continue on the road of substitutes? Or will we take a step back and realize, okay, I don't want to go down this road. I don't want to hunger and thirst for that. Because I know it's not going to deliver. I have to get my attention back on Jesus. But see, getting away from substitutes means that you and I have to change the way we focus on things, the way we live our life. Life is a lot like going to Olive Garden. It is. 
See, when I go to Olive Garden, I think, man, you know, I'm going to have the chicken parmesan. It's really good. You know, with good pasta and chicken, and it's baked just right. And you're really hungry, and you go and you sit down and think, this is what I'm going to have. And then, what do they do? They bring out the prelims. Soup, salad, breadsticks. And they're good. Let me tell you, they're good. But what, if you're like me, anybody know you do the same thing? You order, and then you start eating all the substitutes. And they're good. They taste really good. And on like the seventh breadstick, you're like, you're ready to heave, right? But boy, you just got to shove another one in. And then, here comes the chicken parmesan. I haven't been at Olive Garden one time in my life where the main course was served and I went, oh, I'm so hungry, I can't wait to eat it. I can't remember one time when I went to Olive Garden that I didn't roll out of there feeling sick to my stomach because I ate way too much. But what I ate way too much of was the soup, salad, and breadsticks and very little of the main course of the reason why I went there. Now, I love breadsticks. I love salad. I love the whole experience. But when you and I fill up on substitutes, we never get to the main course. And see, what happens is that you and I can fill up on substitutes and it will curb our appetite for God. It will keep it at bay. It will hold it off. But only for so long until we go back and get more substitutes and keep filling that in until eventually we get hungry again and then the cycle keeps repeating and repeating and repeating. And we never get to the main course. The main reason we exist is to hunger and thirst for Jesus. Because when we get to that point, He's the only one that ultimately satisfies. And we don't feel sick over it because we've taken substitutes into our spiritual bodies and now realize that they'd never really delivered. You and I have to be willing to take a step back and say, okay, I'm not going there anymore. I'm not going to have that substitute. I'm not going to live in that anymore. I'm not going to go back to the same place that I know is going to disappoint. I'm going to make changes in the way that I live my life that I don't keep going back to the same things over and over and over again so that I can ultimately have a hunger and thirst for Jesus. And the second thing is that we have to learn to empty ourselves from distractions. Empty ourselves of those things that try to grab our attention, grab our affection. That ultimately, distractions, what they do is they keep us busy with our own agenda so that we can never get to God's agenda. We are living out our will, but we're not living out His will because we're still stuck on our will. Jesus talks about distractions in a different way in, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, which I seem to find myself quoting every week as we go through the Beatitudes. He says, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and then all these things. If you read prior to that in verse chapter 6, he's talking about clothing and food and shelter and all the things that we stress out about, all the things that we focus on. He says, and I will take care of all those things, but you have to put my kingdom and my righteousness first in your life. See, we, we flip that and we are distracted by all the things around us. We're distracted by what's happening to the right and to the left and the things. And we go after those things and we give them our affection. We give them our attention. And then we don't have any space left for us to focus on what Jesus is up to. And so that's, that's a difficult thing because distractions can be very convincing. Let me read from Luke chapter 14 verses 16 through 20. I read this a couple weeks ago. But I want to read it again because it's Jesus talking about distractions. And distractions are actually good things that get in the way of great things says, Jesus replied, verse 16 of Luke 14, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready now, or is now ready. But they were all alike, began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. He has possessions. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I have a job. It's very important. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I want to be a good family man, so I can't come. Those are my paraphrases, okay? Don't try to find them in there. They're not there. <laughs> but what is Jesus unfolding for them? Distractions. Distractions usually are good things that get in the way of great things. And when it comes to the greatest thing for humanity is a hunger and thirst for Jesus. And anything that gets in the way of that is a distraction. Now, good things can end up being good as long as they're not the things that are the focus of our lives. Because the focus of our lives has to be very single-minded, focused on Jesus, and then let everything else fall in behind. But we're so easily distracted by things, especially in the church. We'll come up with a million different things and programs and, and this and that and everything. We go after it and really, wait a second, wait, wait, wait. 
Does this create a focus on Jesus? Does this bring glory to God? Does this create me in me a desire to hunger and thirst after God? Or does it just make me addicted to going to church? Sometimes we do. We, sometimes we're more in love with church than we are in love with Jesus. We never want to be that kind of church where the church gets in the way of what God's doing. We want to be in line with what God is doing. You know, it's the, it's the, it's the things that just distract. It's a great illustration of this. Is, you can go on YouTube after, after this morning and type in Barking dog play. If you're a basketball fan, you know what this is. Now, I coached a lot of years of basketball, but, but I have, I've never done this. But someday I, I want to coach again just so I can do this play. And so the whole premise of this play is it's, it's an inbound play. So it means the ball is getting passed in. And the team that's on offense is right underneath their own basket. They want to score. And there's five defenders out on the floor. And they're guarding their positions. They're guarding players. And on the offensive side, one player, when, when, they, when they're about to inbound, runs out to the sideline, gets down on all fours, and starts barking like a dog. It's the most ridiculous thing you've ever seen. But it's also really effective. Because what happens to the five defenders on the floor? They start looking at the idiot over on the sideline, on his hands and knees, barking like a dog, and thinking, what are you doing? And while they say that... In comes a guy from the weak side, slips in underneath the basket, they pass too many scores. It happens over and over and over again. It's brilliant. Because it's based on distraction. And a barking dog has nothing to do with basketball. That's why it's so distracting. I don't know what it is for you, but what's your barking dog? What is it? The barking dog is the thing that makes the most noise in your life. It's the thing that drives you to be distracted from what you know is important right in front of you, but you keep going to the stupid barking dog because it's louder and it's more obnoxious and it seems to have more draw to you. And so you keep going back to it. And while you're doing that, you're doing your agenda and you're missing God's agenda right next to you. See, if you and I are going to have a hunger and thirst for Jesus, then we can't be distracted by things that we know are distractions. Sometimes we don't want to admit they're distractions. We want them to be the central point, but we know that really they're distracting us. We have to be willing to let them go so that we can solely focus on the hunger and thirst for Jesus. And then the third thing is that also, again, emptying. Emptying ourselves of self-righteousness. So realizing that you and I can do nothing, we have nothing, we can say nothing that somehow is going to earn us acceptance by God. It's called God's grace. But we still like to try, don't we? We still like to live out our life trying to make that happen. Let me back up a few verses in Philippians 3 because Paul describes this journey for him about how he had a sense of self-righteousness in his own life. And he writes this in verse 4 of Philippians 3. He says, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anybody has confidence or is self-righteous, Paul has the right to it. He says, If anyone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But then he says in verse 7, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. All the substitutes, all the distractions I put aside because the only thing that's important to me is a hunger and thirst for Jesus. Paul had an amazing resume. Nobody in the world could hold up Paul's spiritual resume and come anywhere close to who he was. He had done it all. He had done it almost to perfection, at least in his own mind. He had done an amazing job. He could hold it up and say, look what I've done, look what I've done. I've actually done better than anybody else. And then he comes to verse 7 and says, it doesn't matter. None of that comes close to pursuing Jesus, to following him, to hungering and thirsting for him. And if you and I understand that, that the opposite of true is true of, of verse 6. When Jesus says, you're, you're blessed if you hunger and thirst for righteousness because you're going to be filled. But you know what's also true? The opposite. That is that you and I are cursed when we hunger and thirst for self-righteousness because we'll never be satisfied. We won't. But we like to go after it. There's just something in us that needs that pat on the back. It needs that attaboy or that attagirl to say, yeah, you're a good person. When reality is, is we're not, and we can never be good enough. Which should be a relief to us. That I don't have to be good enough because God accepts me. But I get to choose to be good because I want to, because God loves me. It's different. But self-righteousness is what drives many of us, and we don't even realize it, because we're wanting to be right. We're wanting to do things right. We're wanting the pat on the back. We're wanting to check off the list. And this is the area that I lived in for a number of years, probably the first four years of the church that we planted in Ventura. 
I lived in a self-righteous state as a pastor. That was my driving force, was to be the best pastor, to be, do everything right, to be better than other churches and better than other pastors and bigger and more successful. That was my driving force. I had the epic scenario in my mind of what I was going to be as a pastor. And it never came to pass. I kept going around that mountain and getting frustrated at myself. I kept getting frustrated at the people who were in the church. If they would just get their act together, they would see what a great pastor I am. That's what I would think. Stupid. But that's where I was living. That was the driving force. So I was hard on people. I was brutal towards people because their failure reflected poorly on my self-righteousness. It took me four years for God to finally humble me and say, you're, you're nothing special. You're not significant. And in a sense, Jesus had to say, I'm the main event. You're not. That was painful. But I'll tell you, after that fourth year, the next couple years of pain were the best times of my life because I learned more about who Jesus is and who I'm not and who I don't have to be that I actually get to enjoy pastoring again. You guys are lucky you get me now, okay? <laughs> Please pray for the poor souls that were a part of ministry 15, 20, or 12 or 15 years ago. That has to happen in you and I that there has to be this breaking of I am not all that I think that I am. And He is. I don't have to be spectacular because Jesus is. And that's all that matters for you and I. And then the final thing. In a moment, we're going to head towards communion. The worship team will join us again. But the final thing that's so important for you and I to understand about hunger and thirst and developing that for Jesus is that finally we have to empty ourselves of our assumptions. Let me explain what I mean by this. You think, that? how does that fit? See, you and I, if we're truly going to have a pure, right hunger and thirst for Jesus then we have to let go of our preconceived notions of who we think he is. The reason this is so important is that you and I, sometimes we create the Jesus of our own liking. We create the God that fits in our box. And so when we start to discover that God doesn't live in the box and Jesus won't contain himself by our definition, we start to think, do I really want to hunger and thirst for that? Because he's not quite tame like I want him to be. He's not playing by my rules. He's not the God that I've set him up to be. You see, that's exactly what happened 2,000 years ago. When Jesus walked on the planet, he was torquing people. He was frustrating people. He was stepping outside of the box for people. And they didn't like it. Because they had their definition of who God is. They had God in a box. The Pharisees and the, the teachers of the law, they had God in the religious box. And when Jesus came along and blew that box apart... They didn't like that. And we always like to look back 2,000 years ago and we cap on those religious leaders. Boy, I would have done it better. No, sometimes we do it just as much as they do it then we do it today. So when we read through the scriptures or we listen to a message or we hear people talk about Jesus, we pick and choose, even maybe subconsciously, the things we like about Jesus and we leave the things that we don't like to the side. See, because if you and I are going to have a true hunger and thirst for Jesus... That means I can't make any assumptions that I think are true that are false. See, assumptions are things that you and I think are true, but if we never investigate to think that they're true, we don't realize that they could be false. You made an assumption when you came in here today and you sat down in a chair, you assumed the chair would hold your weight. Thank goodness it did, right? When you understand who Jesus is, you're assuming you understand clearly who, is, who he is. That's why you and I have to constantly go back to the Gospels. Constantly go back to, that's why we're going through Matthew 5 through 7 and then other parts of Matthew. We're going to listen to the words of Jesus so that Jesus is defined by Jesus, not by John Amstutz, not by New Hope Christian Fellowship, not by Simi Valley, not by our country. Jesus is defined by who he says he is. And if you and I are going to have a pure hunger and thirst for him, we have to know who he is. Because if not, then what happens is our hunger and thirst becomes a means to our end. Because we think, well, okay, I will seek first your kingdom and your righteousness because then I get all the other stuff anyway. It's kind of like I talked about er earlier when we talked about giving. I want to give so that I can get. God becomes a means to our end. And when we do that, we miss out. Because we think we're going to get the goods and then that's all. We, we really don't want Jesus. We just want what Jesus can offer us. It's like my friend in, in middle school. His name was Craig. Craig had the best lunches of any kid of all time. 
I don't know what his parents did or how they allowed him to do this or if somehow he was cheating. But you know when you're, when you're younger, you know, when you come to school, you kind of start sizing up everybody else's lunch and want to trade, you know? The typical lunch is like a sandwich, you know, chips and then the dreaded piece of fruit or, or vegetable and then like the good stuff, a cookie. Anybody relate, right? So that's the kind of lunch I would usually go with. But Craig, I'm kidding you not, he would have like 10 things and the 10 things would be a Twinkie, a Ding Dong, a cupcake, cookies. I mean, it was like everything that you could possibly desire in the ultimate lunch. And every day, Craig had more friends than anybody in our school for at least five minutes. Every day, you, everyone knew where Craig was sitting because everybody would come around him. And I remember looking at my lunch and think, I can't compete. There's no way I can trade anything. So everyone, we would just say, hey, you're not going to eat that, are you? No, he's not going to eat it. He wanted friends. And he did get friends for five minutes until the bag was empty and everybody got what they came for, but nobody came for Craig. It's actually pretty sad. He knew that he could have friends for five minutes, but that was the extent of it. What if we treat Jesus like that? That he's simply just a means to our end. And I'll hunger and thirst for him as long as he delivers with what I really want. See, you and I don't know what we really want. Because what we really want is Jesus. But we've made assumptions that he's different than who he really is. So that's why I challenge you, go back and read the Gospels. That's why we're, ha- if you've been here the last nine months, we've kind of talked about one guy over and over and over again. Anybody guess who it is? It's Jesus. He's the definition of who God is. He's our understanding of how we relate to the Father. He's central. He's who we hunger and thirst for. So as we prepare in just a moment, I'm, I'm going to, we'll lead our, ourselves towards communion. But listen to, to Paul's conclusions as he's focused himself on Jesus. In Philippians 3, verse 10 and 11, he says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection, participating in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. I want to know Christ. Is that the driving force? When we engage with God when we come to church, is that the question that hits our, our minds when we come in, in the doors of this building? I want to know Christ more today. I want to be for, focused more on God today. Or is it, I want the music to be just right. I want Pastor John to have a really good, inspiring, entertaining message. I want the temperature in the room to be just right. I want my kids to be cared for just right. Or do we walk in saying, I want to know Jesus more today. See, because if, if that's the question that we ask coming in, you know what it would change about us? It would change the way we worship. It would change the way we focus on God. It would change the, what time we walk in this building. It would. Because I get to be with God's people today trying to navigate what it means to know Jesus more because it's ultimately about him and not about me. It would change. And we could say, hey, you know what? You need to get here on time and you need to worship this way. I don't want to do that. I want to point you to Jesus because Jesus will inspire you more than I will or Tim will or any other worship team member. He is more inspiring and more gripping and more magnifying than anything we could ever do up on this stage. And if he's not drawing us here and he's not working in our lives, then forget what we're doing here. It's just a show. It's got to be about him. So when we walk away from this building, it's not how is church today. It's what did Jesus do today? What did he do in my life? What do I know more about who he is? What did he challenge me in my life? How am I living differently? Because I encountered him today. That's the ultimate goal. That's my desire for me individually. That's my desire for you as as your pastor. That when you walk out of this place, you don't pat me on the back because I had a good message. You're walking away saying, Jesus spoke to me today. I know who he is more. He's challenged me to grow. I know how much he loves me, but he's pushing me further to follow him more, and I know him better today than I did yesterday. So as we prepare for communion, would you go ahead and just close your eyes? I want you just to focus as we, as we take this concept of hungering and thirsting and realizing that what we're about to do in the next few moments with communion is the very thing that answers to the greatest need that each one of us has in our soul. So I want you just to, to capture for a moment. Jesus was kind of like my friend Craig in that he had, a, he had big crowds that would follow him. In fact, when he fed 5,000 people, we know it was more than that because there were whole families that were gathered there. They're just counting the men at the time. Thousands and thousands of people. It says those people that received that meal, the people that, that got it, they actually followed him to the next place because in their minds they thought, we just got a really amazing free meal and that's what we want. So they followed Jesus. 
But Jesus tried to help people to understand that it's not about the physical reality. It's not about the things that we make the priority. It's about something greater. And that's why Jesus also said to his followers, he said this very difficult thing. He said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. You have no part in me. And as he said that, he's saying to all of us, and he said to them, it's not about the physical food. It's not about the free meal. It's about you following me in a way that you are willing to participate in my sacrifice and my sufferings. That you are willing to fully surrender yourself, realizing that the only thing that will satisfy your soul is me. No physical food, no spiritual food, nothing else except me. And it said at that time that many people walked away. See, because Jesus had blown up one of their assumptions. But the beauty was that those who came to the cross, those who were willing to surrender themselves at the cross, the place where Jesus' body and his was broken and his blood was shed for you and I, it was those people who experienced forgiveness. It was those people who received righteousness. It was those people who received the forgiveness that allowed them to live life. So in these next moments, there's four stations around the sanctuary. And any time during the remainder of our worship time, you're welcome to go and to take the, the bread and the cup. These are simply physical symbols of something far greater. They point to what Jesus has done for you and I. And the reason that we continue to go back to communion, the reason we go back to the cross, is what the cross allows you and I to do, is it allows us to remove the distractions once again come back to the foot of the cross to be reminded that the only thing that sustains us, the only thing that satisfies us is Jesus. It's Jesus' death and His resurrection and His salvation. It's who He is in our life. That's the only thing. And so the cross removes those distractions. It lets us see clearly again, okay, Jesus, I need to come back to you. I need to come back to you. And so these next few moments as you receive those elements in in a sense, confess the distractions, confess the substitutes, and tell Jesus, I am coming back once again be focused solely on you so that I hunger and thirst for only you. Lord Jesus, would you do that in these next few moments as we give you our hearts, our minds, our attention to focus on you and your sacrifice on the cross. Remove distractions. Take away substitutes and focus us back on you. In Jesus' name.